0: Section 12 of Chapter 21 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 21, Section 12. Parkins, who was old and gouty could not himself take a share in the work of death. But he employed himself in providing horses, saddles, and weapons for his younger and more active accomplices. In this department of business he was assisted by Charles Cranburn, a person who had long acted as a broker between Jacobite plotters and people who dealt in cutlery and firearms. Special orders were given by Barclay, that the swords should be made rather for stabbing than for slashing. Barclay himself enlisted Edward Lowick, who had been a major in the Irish army, and who had, since the capitulation of Limerick, been living obscurely in London. The monk who had been Barclay's first confidant recommended two busy papists, Richard Fisher and Christopher Knightley and this recommendation was thought sufficient. Knightley drew in Edward King, a Roman Catholic gentleman of hot and restless temper, and King procured the assistance of a French gambler and bully named De La Rue. Meanwhile the heads of the conspiracy held frequent meetings at treason taverns for the purpose of settling a plan of operations several schemes were proposed applauded and on full consideration abandoned at one time it was thought that an attack on kensington house at dead of night might probably be successful the outer wall might easily be scaled if once forty armed men were in the garden the palace would soon be stormed or set on fire Some were of opinion that it would be best to strike the blow on a Sunday, as William went from Kensington to attend divine service at the chapel of St. James' Palace. The murderers might assemble near the spot where Apsley House and Hamilton Place now stand. Just as the royal coach passed out of Hyde Park, and was about to enter what has since been called the Green Park, thirty of the conspirators, well mounted, might fall on the guards. The guards were ordinarily only five-and-twenty. They would be taken completely by surprise, and probably half of them would be shot or cut down, before they could strike a blow. Meanwhile ten or twelve resolute men on foot would stop the carriage by shooting the horses, and would then without difficulty dispatch the king. At last the preference was given to a plan originally sketched by Fisher and put into shape by Porter. William was in the habit of going every Saturday from Kensington to hunt in Richmond Park. There was then no bridge over the Thames between London and Kensington. The King therefore went, in a coach escorted by some of his bodyguards, through Turnham Green to the river. There he took boat crossed the water, and found another coach and another set of guards ready to receive him on the Surrey side. The first coach and the first set of guards awaited his return on the northern bank. The conspirators ascertained with great precision the whole order of these journeys, and carefully examined the ground on both sides of the Thames. They thought that they should attack the King. With more advantage on the Middlesex than on the Surrey bank, and when he was returning than when he was going. for When he was going he was often attended to the waterside by a great retinue of lords and gentlemen, but on his return he had only his guards about him. The place and time were fixed. The place was to be a narrow and winding lane leading from the landing-place on the north of the river to turnham green the spot may still be easily found the ground has since been drained by trenches but in the seventeenth century it was a quagmire through which the royal coach was with difficulty tugged at a foot's pace the time was to be the afternoon of saturday the fifteenth of february on that day the forty were to assemble in small parties at public-houses near the green. When the signal was given that the coach was approaching, they were to take horse and repair to their posts. As the cavalcade came up this lane, Charnock was to attack the guards in the rear, Rockwood on one flank, Porter on the other, meanwhile Barclay, with eight trusty men, was to stop the coach and to do the deed. That no movement of the king might escape notice, two orderlies were appointed to watch the palace. One of these men, a bold and active Fleming, named Durant, was especially charged to keep Barclay well informed. The other, whose business was to communicate with Charnock, was a ruffian named Chambers, who had served in the Irish army, had received a severe wound in the breast at the Boyne, and on account of that wound bore a savage personal hatred to William. While Barclay was making all his arrangements for the assassination, Berwick was endeavouring to persuade the Jacobite aristocracy to rise in arms. But this was no easy task. Several consultations were held. And there was one great muster of the party under the pretence of a masquerade for which tickets were distributed among the initiated at one guinea each all ended however in talking singing and drinking many men of rank and fortune indeed declared that they would draw their swords for their rightful sovereign as soon as their rightful sovereign was in the island with a French army, and Berwick had been empowered to assure them that a French army should be sent as soon as they had drawn the sword. But between what they asked and what he was authorized to grant, there was a difference which admitted of no compromise. Lewis, situated as he was, would not risk ten or twelve thousand excellent soldiers on the mere faith of promises similar promises had been made in 1690 and yet when the fleet of tourville had appeared on the coast of devonshire the western counties had risen as one man in defense of the government and not a single malcontent had dared to utter a whisper in favor of the invaders similar promises had been made in 1692 and to the confidence which had been placed in those promises was to be attributed the great disaster of La Hogue. the french king would not be deceived a third time he would gladly help the english royalists but he must first see them help themselves there was much reason in this and there was reason also in what the jacobites urged on the other side if they said they were to rise without a single disciplined regiment to back them against a usurper supported by a regular army they should all be cut to pieces before the news that they were up could reach versailles as Berwick could hold out no hope that there would be an invasion before there was an insurrection and as his english friends were immovable in their determination that there should be no insurrection till there was an invasion. He had nothing more to do here, and became impatient to depart. He was the more impatient to depart, because the 15th of February drew near, for he was in constant communication with Barclay, and was perfectly apprised of all the details of the crime which was to be perpetrated on that day. He was generally considered as a man of sturdy, and even ungracious integrity, but to such a degree had his sense of right and wrong been perverted by his zeal for the interests of his family, and by his respect for the lessons of his priests, that he did not, as he has himself ingeniously confessed, think that he lay under any obligation to dissuade the assassins from the execution of their purpose, He had, indeed, only one objection to their design, and that objection he kept to himself. It was simply this, that all who were concerned were very likely to be hanged. That, however, was their affair, and if they chose to run such a risk in the good cause, it was not his business to discourage them. His mission was quite distinct from theirs. He was not to act with them, and he had no inclination to suffer with them. He therefore hastened down to Romney Marsh and crossed to Calais. At Calais, he found preparations making for a descent on Kent. Troops filled the town. Transports filled the port. Boufflers had been ordered to repair thither from Flanders and to take the command. James himself was daily expected. In fact, he had already left Saint-Germain. Berwick, however, would not wait. He took the road to Paris, met his father at Clermont, and made a full report of the state of things in England. His embassy had failed. The royalist nobility and gentry seemed resolved not to rise till a French army was in the island. But there was still a hope. News would probably come within a few days that the usurper was no more, and such news would change the whole aspect of affairs. James determined to go on to Calais, and there to await the events of Barclay's plot. Berwick hastened to Versailles for the purpose of giving explanations to Lewis. What the nature of the explanations was we know from Berwick's own narrative— he plainly told the French king that a small band of loyal men would in a short time make an attempt on the life of the great enemy of France. The next courier might bring tidings of an event which would probably subvert the English government and dissolve the European coalition. It might have been thought that a prince who ostentatiously affected the character of a devout Christian and of a courteous knight, would instantly have taken measures for conveying to his rival a caution which perhaps might still arrive in time, and would have severely reprimanded the guests who had so grossly abused his hospitality. Such, however, was not the conduct of Lewis. Had he been asked to give his sanction to a murder— he would probably have refused with indignation, but he was not moved to indignation by learning that, without his sanction, a crime was likely to be committed which would be far more beneficial to his interests than ten such victories as that of Landon. He sent down orders to Calais that his fleet should be in readiness as might enable him to take advantage of the great crisis which he anticipated. At Calais, James waited with still more impatience for the signal that his nephew was no more. That signal was to be given by a fire, of which the fuel was already prepared on the cliffs of Kent, and which would be visible across the straits. But a peculiar fate has in our country always attended such conspiracies as that of Barclay and Charnock. The English regard assassination, and have during some ages regarded it, with a loathing peculiar to themselves. So English indeed is this sentiment, that it cannot even now be called Irish, and till a recent period it was not Scotch. In Ireland to this day, the villain who shoots at his enemy from behind a hedge is too often protected from justice by public sympathy. In Scotland, plans of assassination were often, during the 16th and 17th centuries, successfully executed, though known to a great number of persons. The murders of Beaton, of Rizzio, of Darnley, of Murray, of Sharpe, are conspicuous instances. The Royalists who murdered Lyle in Switzerland were Irishmen. The Royalists who murdered Asham at Madrid were Irishmen. The Royalists who murdered Doris Louse at The Hague were Scotchmen. In England, as soon as such a design ceases to be a secret hidden in the recesses of one gloomy and ulcerated heart, the risk of detection and failure becomes extreme. Felton and Bellingham reposed trust in no human being, and they were therefore able to accomplish their evil purposes. But Babington's conspiracy against Elizabeth, Fawkes's conspiracy against James, Gerard's conspiracy against Cromwell, the Rye House conspiracy, the Cato Street conspiracy, were all discovered frustrated and punished. In truth, such a conspiracy is here exposed to equal danger from the good and bad qualities of the conspirators. Scarcely any Englishman, not utterly destitute of conscience and honour, will engage in a plot for slaying an unsuspecting fellow-creature, and a wretch who has neither conscience nor honour is likely to think much on the danger which he incurs, by being true to his associates, and on the rewards which he may obtain by betraying them. There are, it is true, persons in whom religious or political fanaticism has destroyed all moral sensibility on one particular point, and yet has left that sensibility generally unimpaired. Such a person was Digby, he had no scruple about blowing king, lords, and commons into the air. Yet to his accomplices he was religiously and chivalrously faithful. Nor could even the fear of the rack extort from him one word to their prejudice. But this union of depravity and heroism is very rare. The vast majority of men are either not vicious enough, or not virtuous enough to be loyal and devoted members of treacherous and cruel confederacies and if a single member should want either the necessary vice or the necessary virtue the whole confederacy is in danger to bring together in one body forty englishmen all hardened cutthroats, and yet all so upright and generous that neither the hope of opulence nor the dread of the gallows contempt any one of them to be false to the rest, has hitherto been found, and will, it is to be hoped, always be found impossible. There were among Barclay's followers both men too bad and men too good to be trusted with a secret as this. The first whose heart failed him was Fisher, even before the time and place of the crime had been fixed, he obtained an audience of Portland, and told that lord that a design was forming against the king's life. Some days later Fisher came again with more precise intelligence, but his character was not such as entitled him to much credit, and the knavery of Fuller, of Young, of Whitney, and of Taff had made men of sense slow to believe stories of plots. Portland, therefore, though in general very easily alarmed where the safety of his master and friend was concerned, seems to have thought little about the matter. But on the evening of the 14th of February, he received a visit from a person whose testimony he could not treat lightly. This was a Roman Catholic gentleman of known courage and honour, named Pendergrass. He had, on the preceding day, come up to town from Hampshire, in consequence of a pressing summons from Porter, who, dissolute and unprincipled as he was, had, to Pendergrass, been a most kind friend, indeed, almost a father. In a Jacobite insurrection, Pendergrass would probably have been one of the foremost, but he learned with horror that he was expected to bear a part in a wicked and shameful deed. He found himself in one of those situations which most cruelly torture noble and sensitive natures. What was he to do? Was he to commit a murder? Was he to suffer a murder which he could prevent to be committed? Yet was he to betray one who, however culpable, had loaded him with benefits. Perhaps it might be possible to save William without harming Porter. Pendergrass determined to make the attempt. My lord, he said to Portland, as you value King William's life, do not let him hunt tomorrow. He is the enemy of my religion, yet my religion constrains me to give him this caution." BUT THE NAMES OF THE CONSPIRATORS I AM RESOLVED TO CONCEAL. SOME OF THEM ARE MY FRIENDS. ONE OF THEM ESPECIALLY IS MY BENEFACTOR, AND I WILL NOT BETRAY THEM. PORTLAND WENT INSTANTLY TO THE KING, BUT THE KING RECEIVED THE INTELLIGENCE VERY COOLLY, AND SEEMED DETERMINED NOT TO BE FRIGHTENED OUT OF A GOOD DAY'S SPORT BY SUCH AN IDLE STORY. "'Portland argued and implored in vain. "'He was at last forced to threaten "'that he would immediately make the whole matter public "'unless His Majesty would consent to remain within doors "'during the next day, "'and this threat was successful. "'Saturday the 15th came. "'The 40 were all ready to mount "'when they received intelligence from the orderlies "'who watched Kensington House,' that the king did not mean to hunt that morning. The fox, said Chambers with vindictive bitterness, keeps his earth. Then he opened his shirt, showed the great scar in his breast, and vowed revenge on William. The first thought of the conspirators was that their design had been detected, but they were soon reassured it was given out that the weather had kept the king at home and indeed the day was cold and stormy there was no sign of agitation at the palace no extraordinary precaution was taken no arrest was made no ominous whisper was heard at the coffee-houses the delay was vexatious but saturday the twenty-second would do as well but before saturday the twenty-second arrived a third informer delarue had presented himself at the palace his way of life did not entitle him to much respect but his story agreed so exactly with what had been said by fisher and pendergrass that even william began to believe that there was real danger very late in the evening of friday the twenty first pendergrass who had as yet disclosed much less than either of the other informers, but whose single word was worth much more than their joint oath, was sent for to the royal closet. The faithful Portland and the gallant Cuts were the only persons who witnessed the singular interview between the king and his generous enemy. William, with courtesy and animation which he rarely showed, but which he never showed without making a deep impression, urged Pendergrass to speak out. You are a man of true probity and honour. I am deeply obliged to you, but you must feel that the same considerations which have induced you to tell us so much ought to induce you to tell us something more. The cautions which you have as yet given can only make me suspect everybody that comes near me. They are sufficient to embitter my life, but not sufficient to preserve it. You must let me know the names of these men. During more than half an hour the king continued to entreat and Pendergrass to refuse. At last Pendergrass said that he would give the information which was required, if he could be assured that it would be used only for the prevention of the crime, and not for the destruction of the criminals. "'I give you my word of honor, said William, "'that your evidence shall not be used against any person without your own free consent.' It was long past midnight when Pendergrass wrote down the names of the chief conspirators. While these things were passing at Kensington, a large party of the assassins were revelling at a Jacobite tavern in Maiden Lane. Here they received their final orders for the morrow. To-morrow or never, said King, to-morrow, boys, cried Castles with a curse, we shall have the plunder of the field. The morrow came, all was ready. The horses were saddled, the pistols were loaded, the swords were sharpened. The orderlies were on the alert. They early sent intelligence from the palace that the king was certainly going a-hunting. All the usual preparations had been made. A party of guards had been sent round by Kingston Bridge to Richmond. The royal coaches, each with six horses, had gone from the stables at Charing Cross to Kensington. The chief murderers assembled in high glee at Porter's lodgings. Pendergrass, who by the king's command appeared among them, was greeted with ferocious mirth. Pendergrass, said Porter, you are named one of the eight who are to do his business. I have a musketoon for you that will carry eight balls. Mr. Pendergrass, said King, pray do not be afraid of smashing the glass windows from porter's lodgings the party adjourned to the blue posts in spring gardens where they meant to take some refreshment before they started for turnham green they were at table when a message came from an orderly that the king had changed his mind and would not hunt and scarcely had they recovered from their first surprise at this ominous news when keys who had been out scouting among his old comrades arrived with news more ominous still. The coaches have returned to Charing Cross. The guards that were sent round to Richmond have just come back to Kensington at full gallop, the flanks of the horses all white with foam. I have had a word with one of the Blues. He told me that strange things are muttered. Then the countenances of the assassins fell and their hearts died within them. Porter made a feeble attempt to disguise his uneasiness. He took up an orange and squeezed it. What cannot be done one day may be done another. Come gentlemen, before we part, let us have one glass to the squeezing of the rotten orange. The squeezing of the rotten orange was drunk, and the company dispersed. A few hours elapsed before all the conspirators abandoned all hope. Some of them derived comfort from a report that the king had taken physic, and that this was his only reason for not going to Richmond. If it were so, the blow might still be struck. Two Saturdays had been unpropitious, but Sunday was at hand. One of the plans which had formerly been discussed and abandoned might be resumed the usurper might be set upon at hyde park corner on his way to his chapel charnock was ready for any enterprise however desperate if the hunt was up it was better to die biting and scratching to the last than to be worried without resistance or revenge he assembled some of his accomplices at one of the numerous houses at which he had lodgings and plied there hard with healths to the king, to the queen, to the prince, and to the grand monarch, as they called Louis. But the terror and dejection of the gang were beyond the power of wine, and so many had stolen away that those who were left could effect nothing. In the course of the afternoon it was known that the guards had been doubled at the palace, and soon after nightfall messengers from the secretary of state's office were hurrying to and fro with torches through the streets accompanied by files and musketeers before the dawn of sunday charnock was in custody a little later rockwood and bernardi were found in bed at a jacobite alehouse on tower hill seventeen more traitors were seized before noon and three of the Blues were put under arrest. That morning a council was held, and as soon as it rose an express was sent off to call home some regiments from Flanders. Dorset set out for Sussex, of which he was Lord-Lieutenant, Romney, who was warden of the Sinkports, started for the coast of Kent, and Russell hastened down the Thames to take command of the fleet. In the evening the council sat again. Some of the prisoners were examined and committed. The Lord Mayor was in attendance, was informed of what had been discovered, and was specially charged to look well to the peace of the capital. On Monday morning all the trained bands of the city were under arms. The King went in state to the House of Lords, sent for the Commons, and from the Throne, told the Parliament that, but for the protection of a gracious Providence, he should at that moment have been a corpse, and the Kingdom would have been invaded by a French army. The danger of invasion, he added, was still great, but he had already given such orders as would, he hoped, suffice for the protection of the realm some traitors were in custody, warrants were out against others, he should do his part in this emergency, and he relied on the houses to do theirs. The houses instantly voted a joint address, in which they thankfully acknowledged the divine goodness which had preserved him to his people, and implored him to take more than ordinary care of his person, they concluded by exhorting him to seize and secure all persons whom he regarded as dangerous. End of section 12